Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit Is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit Is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store. All right, we are back in the Detroit Is Different studios. It is March 8th and... A very, very special guest today, somebody that represented Detroit from the city council capacity, also knows a lot about Detroit business. And for a long period of time, when we think about one of the social justice warriors that has stood tall for the city of Detroit and meant so much for justice in the fight for making sure that Wayne State was equal, making sure that police brutality was always suppressed. This was his better half. Sheila Cockrell, how are you doing today? Very good, Kyrie. Glad to be here. I love your studio, love the space where you're, the neighborhood that you are affirming its roots and building its future. Thank you, thank you. Yes, I, I think I probably have like a, um, I'm holding down the market on podcast studios thus now, maybe in this circumference, God knows how far, but, um, but it's cool to be here. I've been here for a while and uh definitely rooted like the house next door is the house i remember most and this is uh my grandma's house that mm -hmm. a lot of times you know how kids grow up with their grandma right so um that leads to the question of you y you and your family's ties to detroit how did it all happen well my <clears throat> um uh, my ethnic ancestry is um irish and french canadian with a little bit of um of um Scottish uh, oh. blood in in the family. My great great his great grandparents. Um, my my sister's very much into uh, genealogy, so she's studying this. Um, came to Detroit. Um, left mainly left Ireland in the famine in, in the mid 1800s oh. and ended up in Canada and then migrated from. Canada to uh, the United States. Um, peers that people were mainly into farming mm -hmm. um, and sort of moving, finding a place, finding a space where land could be acquired. My uh, father's family um, ended up in Marine City um, up in, in the vicinity of Port Huron. My grandfather my paternal grandfather was a captain on the Great Lakes. Hmm. He uh, captained an iron ore boat that traveled between uh, Detroit and Wisconsin and um, um, you know upper the upper Midwest to the places where cars were made, where you know steel was used for fabricating um, the materials that were the engine for the American economy. Um, and my uh, my paternal my maternal grandparents, a, a, a French Canadian, came from um, Woodsley, Ontario, huh. to uh, to Detroit. My grandfather on my, my mother's side was a, a doctor, an MD. He worked at St. John Hospital. Okay. Um, and, you know, my mom grew up on the east side of the city, and eventually um, her family moved at some point to uh, Gross Point, the first Gross Point, whatever one that is. So just by happenstance, it just so happened that your mother's family and your father's family had roots in Ireland and Canada? My my father's family was more um, in, in Ireland. My mother's family was French Canadian, so they were they were more from there. So, you know, my my um, my parents, um, my mother went to Marygrove College. Um, she was the first person in her family um, to get a college degree. A hmm. couple of brother brothers and sisters, her brothers did afterwards. You know, I don't know. That maybe that may not be a hundred percent accurate. Anyway, she. Um, was a um, she was a college graduate. My dad went to uh, studied at um, U of D, and but in 1937, coming sort of in the the consequences of the uh, depression, my my dad was was very much was kind of an act was an activist. Mm -hmm. He formed the Detroit Catholic Worker 
um, houses of hospitality. Uh, the Catholic Worker is a, was and is today even uh, a, a national uh, movement um, where it's rooted in the progressive forms of Catholicism. Um, my, uh, the headquarters for the, for the Catholic Worker is in New York City. Um, the, Dor the founders were Dorothy Day and Peter Morin. Um, and basically the Catholic Worker is a movement that that says that you have a house of hospitality where you serve the corporal and spiritual needs of people, um, emulating the corporal and spiritual works of mercy that are bedrock um, Catholic, uh, Catholic theory. Um, so for my dad and mom, this meant creating these two houses of hospitality, St. Francis House, which was a house where men who had no place to live could stay, where every day, 365 days a year, there was a soup line, soup kitchen, um, and then St. Martha House of Hospitality is a house where our family lived and where women and children who didn't have places to stay stayed with us. Uh, my parents lived uh, initially a life of voluntary poverty. We lived on the donations that were came to the Catholic worker um, and basically uh, were a, a, a presence um, to, 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 to respond to the needs of people um, who lived in the neighborhood or who came um, in looking for help. So I grew up in this you know, socially conscious mm -hmm. um, family uh, background, which um, as I came of age in the 60s, certainly stood me in, in good stead with the um, beginnings of the emergence of the, or the, the more public period of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. um, and it led me to a, a grassroots activism. My parents were part of the initial group that founded the West Central Organization, which was on the West Side here, one of the early self-determination grassroots uh, organizations in the city that basically WCO confronted City Hall about the disproportionate allocation of resources for people in what was then the inner city. As you know, in that era, there was this line of demarcation, all people of color mm -hmm. and poor people, all poor people, including poor white people, all lived in the inner city um, and went, and, and that was d differentiated from the outer city and that boundary was uh, East and West Grand Boulevard. So when you cross the boulevard, you knew that you had left the inner city and the inner city is where, as I say, uh, people of color were primarily, not exclusively, but primarily, um, able to live uh, and anybody who was poor was also the area that was shared space with uh, the centers of commerce downtown you know because downtown was the was still the a viable um, location and so that was a um, and, and so that became was one of my early forms of involvement at WCO doing voter registration drives. And then uh, just being impacted by your parents. I, yes. I do have this question, just in that era, just like in that time frame, putting myself in empathizing with the situation. Um, how did your grandparents respond to this? Because your parents were college educated um, and I, I'm sure your grandparents probably were thinking to themselves like, man, you can give and you, you know, but but it, like you can right. be you you know you can do anything son you can do anything daughter and in a dually college educated right. couple i know your parents your grandparents probably just in good faith were thinking like all right what are you doing to our grandkids right. <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I will say that um my my parents our family was always seen as sort of different from mm -hmm. everybody else and mm -hmm. it was um Although it was really interesting, um, well, my, my my paternal grandparents died b before I was born. They literally hmm. died, um, so I never knew my my Murphy grandparents. I did hmm. very much know um, my mother's folks, but Les Bronces uh, was a family name. I, I I knew them very well. In fact, each of them in their at near, at the end of their lives ended up staying with my family wow. um, because of the. Um, you know, there because needs as you to grow care older, you need to care. You need care. So, um, it. But they were. I. I. To the extent that they were put off, um, 
that was never something as a child that I knew. I did know that that I, the stories about my my father was a conscientious objector to World War II. He would not carry a gun. He was a pacifist. Mm. So I, I know he was ordered to the front by the then Catholic cardinal in the, you know for the diocese. And he, his thing was, I'm not carrying a gun. What he did do was become an ambulance driver um, and drove an ambulance associated with the British 8th Army and the American Friends Services Committee through North Africa and Egypt um, for his military service, in, in lieu of military service, because he would not carry a gun. Okay, that was pretty we, unorthodox. We definitely <laughs> have to go into that, especially in that era. Of me, I mean, even to today, um, mm -hmm. as people talk about the... The gun debate, but like, you know, a lot of men, you know, uh, masculinity, machismo, right. we define ourselves, uh, especially in that area, by carrying a gun. As my, right. my grandfather fought in World War II. This this house we're sitting in was bought with the GI Bill from right. World, World War II. War II. Mm -hmm. So, um, what like uh, what what led what was he reading? What led him even to that? Well, this was Catholic worker philosophy, and this was that you you know, and they were the the Catholic worker movement was very much influenced by Mahatma Gandhi and this notion of of um, civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. um, in New York City, this was you know in the era in the nineteen you know forties and fifties, there was this you know this like we're going to build bomb shelters and this is going to protect people from. You know the atom bomb, and so there mm -hmm. would be these in that era um, air raid drills where people were supposed to, when you heard the drill, run down to the subway, and the leaders of the Catholic worker would go sit in Central Park because their thing was one, violence is no solution, and two, there's no way you're going to escape the consequences of an atom bomb by How? hiding in a basement. I definitely had this question. Just my mind is like, uh, I'm so intrigued by your dad now. <laughs> Um, you know, Twitter wasn't around, Google wasn't around. You talk about Gandhi, <laughs> like that was happening like right then. How was he even getting this information? Like, how was like, uh, how was this? Well, there, there was an act. To, there were many really important um, journals and newspapers. The Catholic okay. Worker had its own newspaper called okay. the Catholic Worker. Okay, uh, that was a penny a copy. It's still today a penny a copy. Seriously? Um, yeah. I may need to uh, um, get a Catholic Worker. Right. Um, <laughs> and there was um, there were you know there were magazines like Dissent. Uh, magazines like Commonweal that for people who were in sort of the Catholic mm -hmm. um, progressive intelligentsia. So you you know you you went to um, programs where there would be people making speeches, to carrying on this you know um, vibrant intellectual uh, tradition. So um, it was uh, it was very influential in his life, and he in turn he and my mother both were very influential in, in your life in my life and giving me a a clear, um, a clear sense of the importance of being authentic and speaking your truth and being prepared to speak your truth, whether it's popular or unpopular. And mm -hmm. over the, the fireplace at home, there was this quote from a, a Catholic theology book called mm -hmm. the, the Dialogues of St. Catherine of Siena. And what, the, what it said, and this was really, to me, emblematic of the lives my parents, parents led, was um, it, it had a quote that said, um, I have placed you in the needs, I have placed you in the midst of, oh my goodness, I'm losing it. I've placed you in the midst of your fellows um, to see, I'll have to look it up. Um, okay. But it, and it's- why, why you look that up, I do have, uh the, the at the time your dad taking stances like that yes. was dangerous in the sense of knowing just from the snapshot of what I understand about that time in history that he was taking a stance against World War II. Um, you could be perceived as a communist or yes. a socialist or a Marxist. Right. And I mean, being labeled as that, you know, uh, had people jailed, had some people murdered. Um, I've, I've got it here. I have placed you in the midst of your fellows um to just just oh, why am i losing this um i'm gonna have to go back and get it why am i doing this mm -hmm. anyway let's move on um hmm. that but but the the notion was that you live your truth you speak your values you um um that you were ultimately judged by how you treat and behave 
uh, treat other people and how you behave around them, and that speaking your truth uh-huh. um, was was sort of a central premise of your of life. And so I I have found that stood me in really good stead. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to inner city schools in the fifties. Um, and then was the first inner city child accepted at Immaculata High School mm-hmm. in Northwest Detroit in 1961, um, and had the firsthand experience of the differential in the kind of education you you would get in an inner city school um, as <clears throat> compared to a a middle class or upper middle class school in the city at that oh, time. Oh, I would say uh, schools. Have a lot to do with that, but right. I definitely have to talk about just that that danger of your father taking stances like that because you know at the time you know um, the fight against red was strong in, right in our and, nation. And, and, and we and the Catholic worker were seen as sort of um, um, a communist pink type yes yes pink pink. Was it pink organizations? Oh, you're pink. not. You're not really <laughs> red. You're pink. But you're leaning. That you're leaning way. in that direction. So, mm-hmm. you know, people like myself would be referred to as red diaper babies, um, mm. children born to parents who had, you know, levels of activism in the in the 40s and 50s. And he didn't. Uh, <clears throat> he didn't fear any of this. Is like uh, I, I don't know that he did, but I mean, I grew up knowing that if you believed it, you said it, mm-hmm. and you stood by it, and you you know, dealt with whatever the consequences were, but you did not keep your mouth shut. You spoke your truth. Okay. And as you go through that and that influences now, like it, I can put into context a lot of things, even, and, and when I'm not even moving there as of just yet, but I definitely know uh, your late husband, Ken Cockrell, yes. had a lot of uh, socialist and communist label thinking, yes. which in reality is weird. Like we put these things in the boxes where I just think it's like, OK, that's just just or justice for people. But, you right. know, we can label it whatever you want. Sure. I, I think if a person it's enough sandwiches for everybody to eat. You so if you're going to label me a communist for saying I think everybody should have a sa- sandwich, you that I guess I'm communist. That's right. I mean, Ken, Ken and myself both, you know, were part. Came through the era of what was called the New Left in the in the um, early, you know, kind of form, formed in the '60s, um, and and part of that Marxist tradition was this mm-hmm. notion that people at the point of production, people in the factories and the plants, should have a voice and should actually have some control over the process and and have some you know share in the value of the products that were made. That was very. Um, revolutionary concept um Mm -hmm. but you know ken was very much compelled um, or influenced i think not only by marxist um, theoreticians but also by um the emerging both civil rights and black power Mm -hmm. movement the leadership the the ideas that were coming coming from uh those sources um but you know part of what we shared what would each of us brought to our relationship was this fundamental belief that um, people who who make the products, who toil in the service industries, should be should be paid living wages, should have you know real health care, should have secure pensions, and should and who and whose work and life should be afforded the respect that comes from the dignity of real work. Okay, um, now now to that, and I, I just have to, uh, I'm gonna go conservative value from my uh, from my Walsh, Walsh College, some of my Walsh College professors, because mm-hmm. they would say, you pay what the market dictates a person can get paid. No, you pay what you know to be, in a, for you, for your values, what is the fair fair wage. But I mean, there's no period in history. It, it, I mean, in the movie, finally got the news, Ken does this long rap about the nature of the, the uh, of of the disparities that built that are built into capitalism. Mm-hmm. You have people who say they're in mining. They have they've never gotten any dirt under their hands. You own paper. You are you are you know, you are granted stature. You get wealth. You actually are the person in the mine 
mining the product that has the value and you are like paid a minimum wage, you are, you are working in conditions that are dangerous and dirty, uh, and then you get in all of this, the hierarchy, when you intersect racism with mm. how um, the economic system is set up, you, you end up in a, in a fundamentally unfair, unequal system. Now, to, and today it's gotten to like, it's lit literally levels of insanity. You have people who are making hundreds of millions of dollars because they are in a hedge fund and they push paper around. They make their money by taking companies and stripping people of their jobs mm -hmm. and their livelihoods in order to get a better return on an investment that gets rewarded and somebody else over here is left without a job, with a broken life uh, that can have impacts on people's children, et cetera. So I mean, there has to be some space mm. where there is the ability to uh, let the market have its own life and, and, and um, uh, affect, you know, grow, create directions in which it can grow. On mm. the other hand, there has to be a bottom line safety net that says always, people will be able to live. I mean, if you're going to take jobs a away, wage. a living wage. You know. So, but uh, I, I just know, uh, and I, I definitely agree with you. I was presenting, I don't like that for the term sure. devil's advocate, but That's fine. I, I, I read so much into the, you know, the argument for, right. look, it's this one financial prognosticator that deserves to make $400,000 an hour for the company that no. pays people $3 an hour. That is wrong. Masses. But that is so commonplace in our but, industry but, as it dictates. Yes. But as you'll notice right now, the entire structure of mm. American life is utterly out of whack. I mean, <laughs> we are in a period where, you know, reflection on where are we and how did we get here? What happened is, I think, a fairly universal question unless you are on a far far right wing yeah yeah the uh, trickle, very the, small the idea of trickle down economics and upward mobility is an option i was actually watching a whole uh documentary about like you know it every person like the concept of uh some of the theories and it's weird because it'll be ideas that i agree with but the way that it's used right. it's like so it's like you know, uh, you put in your, your Malcolm Galwell uh, right. tipping point amount of hours, you have the same access to, you know, this this person that grew up in this um, elementary school surrounded by gangs and drugs and right. became the same billionaire as this, uh, this, this quote unquote guy we're labeling as a failure that grew up in Silicon Valley that had a good idea. Like it's, it is, uh, it's dismissive to the reality of uh, a lot of people's conditions, especially when you get into the the idea of like, you know, the older you get, the more you're you're thinking survival mode, whether it's a reality and then sometimes it is a reality. Mm -hmm. And that living wage becomes so important as so many people I feel feel trapped by whatever they're doing because they feel like they're circumstantially doing what they're doing instead of choosing. Right. To people do people what do they not want. many people the way the system is currently set up, there are options, many options for the few and few options for the many. Mm -hmm. That is not a system that is just mm -hmm. or equitable. And eventually it's a system that's going to have to change. And I think we're seeing some, you know, sort of distortions of that need for that change um, that are part of the national debate right now on this tariffs issue and everything else. I mean, to this is a global economy. To think otherwise is to... Um, to, to be really being dismissive to the to the thought process oh, yeah, to the to the reality yeah. that the in, that the internet that the that automation has changed fundamentally the nature of economic relationships mm -hmm. and that you cannot you know you may you if you put in a, in a tariff scenario you may save or bring back X thousands of jobs, but you're going to impact negatively three times that many people um, who are also in the same working mm -hmm. class. So, I mean, it's very, um, there's an there's incredible struggle f uh, for the 
hearts and minds of people in this country around issues of the nature of, of the economic connection between um, workers and owners, um, sectors of the economy with each other mm -hmm. that are very, it's going to be fascinating yeah. to see and, how we and, come and out and of this. Generations ago, absolutely, it, it was like, you know, you, you could touch, like you, you had a, a closer quality of life to a lot of the, like, um, the the financially elite which right. which kind of goes completely shifting places back to your journey just in life itself school so you went to a school that um was a completely different culture you went to <laughs> yes. like a school with the elite which i'm sure just like that whole caste based system some of it is it's like caste tech high school here so in some mm -hmm. ways like you know how much of it is that the people believe is good and that sends the 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 children of their their parents that have more influence in communities and in business sectors and all industries end up at these schools does that make it better or is it like this school really is better or is it that the community has already adopted that this is a better school that is better w what do you think made that school what it was and then what impact did it have on you well i, I think schools with more resources are able to provide a more enriching educational mm -hmm. experience um, than schools who have less of that. I, I went to a grade school where I had um, a teacher who from Greece who spoke English as a second language. The majority of my classmates were um, folks uh, from Mexico and Puerto Rico for whom English it was a second language. And we had this teacher, a very nice man, who was supposed to be teaching us all fractions. Nobody could ever figure out when he wrote on the board, like one seventh, he made mm -hmm. the seven look like an F. Mm. So people did not realize that that was a European seven. seven. And of course, so you got a bunch of kids, you got so a lot of tittering about what the F meant that he was putting on the board. Mm -hmm. And so you just sort of- like, What the F is that? Exactly. <laughs> so you have all of this sort of other conversation and you have then this sense of, um, of, of knowing that one, you don't, to the extent that you're like, you have an issue with math, or you think you don't know if you have an issue with math. You know you're not getting this, mm -hmm. but you don't know if you're not getting it because you got an issue with math or because it's very hard to ha to to, to uh, learn from this man who's speaking with a very thick European accent. And mm -hmm. then you have, you know, you'd open, we'd have, you know, textbooks and be reading the, you know, C-Spot Run, C-Puff and, you know, Dick and Jane. And you'd turn the page, you'd turn from one page to the next and a page would be missing from your book. Mm -hmm. Well, what if you're somebody who's struggling to read, you suddenly can't follow what other kids are doing. Mm -hmm. You're not, you can't listen. You're like, you know, flummoxed about is this, is this me or is there a problem with my books? You had those kinds of issues um, that were part of this early uh, education experience. On the other hand, there were parts of going to this school that were very uh, beneficial and that, you, you know, I grew up. Uh, in a very diverse community. I was actually um, a, a, a quote unquote minority, but was a really interesting childhood so you experience. Were like, yeah, being, being like the one, uh, yeah, it can't happen in Detroit where you're yes. like a minority, you're a white person. And you're a minority. You're a minority, yes. yes. Well, I had the, the wonderful experience of having really close friends um, who were from Puerto Rico, and this was an era when there was a really huge migration in the late 50s of folks from Puerto Rico to Detroit. And mm -hmm. so people's grandmothers and great-grandmothers were coming, and I remember going to one of my friend's homes, and her grandmother and great-grandmother had just arrived from Puerto the Rico. island, mm -hmm. and they took one look at me, and they you know, were got yelling in Spanish, and I was told to step outside, and this was a, a, you know, a great-grandmother who believed that red hair and freckles were a sign of a witch. And that I, I went went home in tears. Oh, I'm like, mom, you know, what's wrong with me? Mm -hmm. Blah, blah, blah. My mother's thing was, when you're a teenager, you will have cameo skin and Titian hair. And my thing was, so I got to be 13 and went, mom, 
help me. It's like I still have red hair mm -hmm. and a whole lot of freckles. Um, so it was, it was those sort of, so I got an appreciation for um, the, for being sort of different. Um, mm -hmm. And it also was something, it was a place that really helped me to like um, get comfortable speaking out and mm -hmm. speaking what I believe to be true. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was, it was, it was very good, but high school was very informative. I organized my first group. Um, what was, what group was that? It was called YLA, the Young Lay Apostles. And what it was, was a group bringing middle-class kids. These are kids who now lived in the city into the inner city to two or three of the, um, the Catholic grade schools to, to do tutoring and okay. recreation programming. Um, and it was sort of in that era, an alternative to the generally accepted um, after-school activity for engagement was something called the sodality, which was much more of a spiritual mm -hmm. conversation. And I, this was more activism. Mm -hmm. So for my, in my three years or, you know, sophomore, junior and senior year um, at my high school and a couple of others, the sodality membership fell way, way off because everybody wanted to be doing more um, grassroots, you know, activist kind of uh, mm -hmm. things. So that was, it was a very um, important were your brothers and sisters uh, into this type of work, work too? My, some, some were and some weren't. My, uh, my, my brother and worked very much with all the activities we did when you know, okay. we got going with, the, with WCO. I'm the oldest, so they're all behind oh, okay. me. So so kind of traditional Irish Catholic family, you know, <laughs> stair steps, a year apart. <laughs> it's like you could bully your brother. Into like, yeah, you're doing this. <laughs> right. Uh, so. So anyway, so you know the, the mm -hmm. ex experience, and, and then in, in Detroit in the late '60s, um, you know the '67 rebellion really was a um, seminal for me uh, experience to watch the unleashing of police power to um, to try to take back a city um, was very very instructive. Um, it was a um, because uh, WCO was, was, you know, an active organization. Mm -hmm. The office was at Grand River and Trumbull. It's now a vacant lot. Um, right on the, right on, just off the corner. Hmm. Um, and to, and there was, there was burning and looting on that stretch of Grand River. Our office was actually spared because people knew that this was a place. A place that helped. That helped. And, you know, you could tell the stores where people treated. Where people felt that they were being respected. treated unfairly. Um, right. Ended up, I mean, the same thing from, and it's so funny because it's like last year was the 50-year anniversary of what happened in Detroit, the riot or rebellion. Yes. And it was also the 25-year of what happened in L.A., the riot or rebellion. Yes. Um, so it's still a, a tumultuous relationship between police officers yes and uh, the black community especially yes um, I, I mean and, and this my first organization was um, that I did as a you know young adult was the ad hoc action group to specifically designed to take on police brutality after what I saw in the 67 rebellion personally what I heard what I knew about mm -hmm. um, and then being I volunteered with the poor people's campaign as it was coming through Detroit it was coming from the west coast going east this was uh, Dr. King's program to mm -hmm. link the issues of racism and with poverty and to make the case and and that the war in Vietnam and these issues were all linked there was going to be this big re resurrection city was going to be established on the mall uh, <coughs> uh, <coughs> in in Washington and then participants were going to lobby Congress and then, um, uh, then his murder and then HBO he was murdered. actually has a, a documentary about those last two years starting that organization yes. is a lot of people really don't realize like um, Dr. King said you know as tough as it was fighting the Klan in Alabama right fighting poverty in Chicago you got and it. the racism in Chicago was even tougher you got it and so uh, like here so when the poor people's campaign came to Detroit because we had a progressive liberal mayor, people the campaign was welcomed, mm -hmm. was going to stay at Cobo Hall. So the, mm -hmm. the buses rolled up to 
um, with the with the pilgrims, if you will, coming off the buses, coming mm-hmm. off the buses to stay here, and then we'll move on, mm-hmm. pick up the Detroit delegation, and go forward. And a car backfired, and the mounted division of the police department rode down on people getting off the buses. So you had women and children and clergy and older women, older men being assaulted by with police batons with men on horses. It was so completely outrageous. It was an act by that department that reflected the fact that it was still smarting from losing control in the 67 rebellion. Mm-hmm. So that began, an, I began an organization called Ad Hoc, who we took on the issue of police brutality and the blue curtain of secrecy that uh, governs the, that covers the operations of the department and also the kind of culture and processes that were in place. And then we had after that uh, the uh, New Bethel incident um, where uh, there was a shootout and a police officer was killed and 250 people were, I forget the exact number, but some the participants in the conference who were in the church basement at New Bethel, everyone mm. was arrested and taken downtown. And we're going to, uh, it's so funny because I'm going to play, your interview will play adjacent because um, I do two a week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it'll be your interview and also uh, Chokwe Lumumba's sisters. Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, Atari and Shoshana. Yeah. But uh, Chokwe Lumumba, and it was the re- it was a meeting of the Republic of New, New Africa, Africa that was that's there. That's right. Uh, a Mario Bedelli or Richard Henry, right, and uh, Gaetio Bedelli, which is Milton Henry, right. Uh, Mama Neb or Gloria House was there. Yeah. Uh, Dan Aldridge left, came back. Right. Uh, there were a lot of key figures. As uh, as this is the 50 year anniversary of the Republic of New Africa's beginnings. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year, and it's like a couple different events happening right. around that. But oh, I, yeah, I'd like to know about those. I'll definitely I'd be interested because um, it's an important organization whose real role in history is sort of should be more widely mm-hmm. shared in younger generations. Mm-hmm. I need to know more about it. Um, so that was that became another set of incidences um, that really this- led. I'm guessing so this naturally led you and you were crossing paths with Ken Cockrell all the time. Yes, yes. Well, Ken would work at WCO at the same time that I was uh, like a volunteer there. He was on the staff. Okay. Um in the in the late 60s um and he was also in law school and then because of the taking on police brutality I was working with Justin Rabbits and Ken Cockrell on gathering the information about the uh, the cases of brutality that happened here. We flew, Ch- Justin and I flew to D.C. to meet with Roger Wilkins to get the U.S. Justice Department to take a look at the um, cases that we were we felt should be brought against the police department for this kind of brutality for the uh, for the uh, Poor People's Campaign March. Um, so there was, but this series of police incidences then uh, really led to the formation of this gr- group that would regular protest in front of police headquarters. I have mm-hmm. pictures of us taking pictures of police, the Red Squad officers taking pictures of our demonst- demonstrations. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, you know, we have our own Red Squad file for, I do, Ken did as well, for, you know, like tracking meetings that people were having. I believe that police agents played roles in instigating um, division between people, exploiting. In organizations, and it's it's often talked about. And and what you're saying is a lot of when I interviewed Dan Aldrich, which I highlight, I I have a question a little bit because he talked about Ken Cockrell in law school a little bit when I interviewed him. Uh But uh, this also kind of highlights, I want you to talk about another one of my big, big homies, Actually, two of them you know probably well. And Eleanor Josidius and uh, Judge Claudia Morkel. Yes. But um, but this kind of go echoes that it was already creating a temperament to build, to move a Coleman Young into office because it was so well, much. Well, the stress unit. It was the stress campaign. I mean. It was the, so the, much already right. happening that was like, look. We need black representation. That's understanding of the police brutality because everything from what I've read with, from Phil Kavanaugh is he, he was a lot more progressive than anything else up to that point. But even with the strides he was looking to make with like working with Conrad Mallet Sr., um, it was still not where things needed to be. Well, breaking up that police department, I mean, the, the racial, uh, the racist, to, you know, 
control of that police department. Um, mm -hmm. Jerry Kavanaugh tried first with a very progressive police chief, um, mm -hmm. George Edwards, who just get, just it wasn't going to work. They didn't accept him. Police officers didn't accept him because he wasn't from the police, um, you know, experience. Um, Ray Girardin became the next police chief. Uh, well, then they were called police commissioners. He was a police commissioner. He was a former Detroit Times um, journalist. Uh, he became the chief of police, and he was, well, we call it chief now. He was a police commissioner uh, at the time of the 67 rebellion. By the time we get to 1971 and the creation of the stress unit, uh, we're deeply involved with the Abolish Stress Campaign. Uh, Ken and uh, Justin Ravitz, um, Jeff Taft, folks led the legal efforts. We had we filed a lawsuit to um, try mm -hmm. to get stress abolished. We collected signatures. We had 30 or 40 or 50,000 signatures we tried to take to City Hall. We disrupted council meetings. Uh, Ken, we took over, took over the mic and demanded that the city council act. Uh, there were 21 people shot by stress, um, 19 of whom were black, and I'm forgetting exactly how many people were. The majority of people who were who were shot by stress were killed. Mm -hmm. um, these are officers that put notches on their mm -hmm. belts. Um, they were they were literally a terror squad, uh, and the issue kept growing and growing. The Rochester Street Massacre, which was when the it was a shootout between the Detroit police officers and Wayne County sheriffs, allegedly DPD didn't realize that this was a home of a, a Wayne County sheriff. Um, there are people who say that the real fight was about control of the dope traffic mm -hmm. in the neighborhood that was in the, na the basis of the shootout. Um, but be that as it may, when a black police, black Boyne County Sheriff was killed by a Detroit police officer, that then forced the institution uh, of government to begin to take a look at it. And then, of course, uh, when Hayward Brown and John Percy Boyd um, and Mark Clyde Bethune, uh, who were w waging a war against heroin in the streets of the city, mm -hmm. um, got into a shootout with police officers who were, um, and, and, and they, I believe, part of what people believed at the time was that the police were actually standing guard outside of a dope house that these young mm -hmm. men had decided they were gonna take, take down, yeah. uh, and that that shootout occurred, and then, um, um, uh, Mark Mark um, Bethune and um, John Boyd were killed in in uh, mm -hmm. in um, Atlanta, and Haywood was captured and tried here. There were multiple charges against him. Um, Ken um, led the defense team that got him acquitted on all of the all the charges that were brought against him there. But the process. Can, there was a declaration that was written called the Declaration of the State of Emergency that tied, linked together what was going on in, in, in Angola and Africa, what was going on in Attica, what was going on you know, in prisons across the country and what was going mm -hmm. on in Detroit were all linked. There was a, a march of, I don't know, five or 6,000 uh, basic, ma mainly African-American men mm -hmm. demanding the abolition of stress that really got establishment attention. Um, and then there was the 1973 electoral uh, mayoral race, mm -hmm. which shaped up to be the police chief who created stress, stress John Nichols ran against uh, Coleman Young. Mm -hmm. um, and, and really that work, that anti-stress work galvanized and mobilized uh, of the, the community that to vote built the temperature you got it for the campaign because this is what i'm hearing more of and it's so many different players that you just mentioned and I <coughs> some of this history of uh what happened on rochester but i didn't right. know that in depth till you just went in so right. when along this time did you and uh ken cockrell become start dating like when did it go from like yeah we're working we're working we're working but uh you want to uh go, go get some pizza or something right <laughs> <laughs> um let me see let's see 60. i first i first met ken in 1966 he he was the president of the Jeffries North High Rise 
Black Club. Because mm-hmm. at that time, the Je- one of the towers at Jeffries mm-hmm. was total was total married student housing for folks who were at Wayne State, mm-hmm. and Ken was at, at in the law school. Uh-huh. So um, he and Carol and uh, Kenny lived in um, lived in that building, and he was the president of that high rise Black Club, and uh-huh. he was therefore a member of the, of uh, of um, WCO, mm-hmm. um, and he was at that time running for state rep. He ran in a race for state rep. I can't remember. It was there was he was running a guy white guy named Tom White, and I can't remember if it it was Daisy Elliott, some mm-hmm. known Democratic Party uh, African American female leader. Mm-hmm. They were all in the primary. Well, he didn't win in that primary. I think Tom White, the white guy, won mm-hmm. um, won that primary and went on to to Lansing. That's that's when I first met him. And I think we probably we began dating in um, um, the early seventies, um, and then um, ended up living together for a number of years and then uh, married in 1978 and um, then I had Katie in 1985 and then he uh, died unexpectedly in 1989. Mm. Now this relationship because uh, most of the stories that I've heard about Ken Cockrell's work come from directly from uh, Cho Kwe himself Mm -hmm. because Cho Kwe was one of my um, he was one of my mentors too. Sure. And then some was from uh, Judge Claudia Markham too. Yes, absolutely. As uh, I think she kind of took him under her wing uh-huh. and a lot of uh, some of the work. And then they worked as contemporaries too. But yes. Judge Markham uh, was very active in so absolutely. many different fights with ba- Freedom Summer. Press. I mean, she, uh, Claudia Markham is a giant, um, mm-hmm. both as a judge and as a community leader. I mean, the mm-hmm. number of women. Uh, African-American women particularly, um, who have played incredibly powerful uh, and leadership and leadership roles in the city is legendary. You can add Irma Henderson to the list. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're just, there's, there's yeah. so many, uh, Judge um, uh, Cynthia Stevens, mm-hmm. uh, her, and her, and her, with her history. I mean, there's a rich tradition of really strong, powerful, um, African-American f- mm. women leadership in Detroit. And Claudia Markham is certainly one of the people that um, that uh, set a standard. So when we talk about this standard and everything being being short, and I'm going to have to get you back because we're just not getting to the 70s. <laughs> right. Um, and I definitely want to get into more eras, but this was so much fun because you, you put a lot of pieces together. As I get more and more of these interviews, it's like you get different pieces of the right. Rubik's and you can put Yes, put them all um, together. Um, the 70s and, and that temperature and tone, um, I do just want you to, I'm, I'm going to kind of do uh, uh, what I did with Dan Aldrich. Like, give just an overview of your feel about 70s Detroit and what was happening. A period of enormous transition, consolidation of, of black political power um, in the city. Um, the, 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 I mean, what we haven't talked about, it's subject all into itself, is how residential segregation shaped and formed and deformed not only relationships among people uh, in the city, but between the city and the suburbs, and actually between you know people in the suburbs and people in the city. Um, so, so you this was the period where you had uh, increasing numbers of white people moving out. Mm-hmm. People have stories, and some of them, you know, are stories of, you know. I, you know, I, I didn't want to move out, but my son um, went to school and got he beat got beaten mm-hmm. up. Uh, young women who were living in Lafayette Park who came out from the what used to be the A and P store there and are in the parking lot, and somebody comes up and you know has a gun and says you know um, wants to wants wants assault to take them. Ass, you know assault mm-hmm. people and take mm-hmm. money and so you have those so you have those kinds of experiences then you also have um, you know the white the white families parents who literally were like 
I'm not going to, to live, live in a neighborhood to black people. To black people. So yeah. you, this was the era in which you had the city council trying to passing uh, anti-black busting uh, um, legislation to stop mm -hmm. the the real estate board. Ever anything that needs to be in really sort of unpeeled and identified and named. It is the Detroit Board of Realtors and the role that that organization played. Hmm. In in increasing and in in, in re, uh, re, an invigorating racial tension because this was the group of people who knew where to go go into a neighborhood and say to white families quote unquote they're coming you need mm -hmm. to let me acquire your, your property yeah. so I'll buy it from you and I'm sorry because quote unquote they're coming. And then they turn around and tell the black people, hey. here's your chance. Exactly. You can now live in an integrated <laughs> neighborhood. Next to the and, white people. <laughs> right. And here's now your chance to own your house. So yeah. you sell high to black black folks, sell low to white folks, and you, and these this group of this body of people made out like bandits. They at some point should be unmasked and held accountable for the incredibly destructive role they played. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess they were good capitalists, but they were yeah. awful human yeah, I'm, beings. I'm sure, I'm sure it's, a, it's, it's many uh, um, theories and uh, lectures a lot of my professors could give on that one. Right. Um, so 80s. anyway, so that was really, for me, the, there was, this, was a period of enormous transition and, and, and really the, the, um, the un- the renting of the fabric of mm -hmm. Detroit um, as it had been known and the and the re the sewing back up of a new fabric that was shaped very much That's by yeah. the election black leadership of black leadership in Detroit 80s Detroit um, 80s Detroit is a period where the disinvestment in the city uh, that had been going on since 1950s was really mm -hmm. becoming uh, apparent, it, Coleman Young. Coleman Young will ultimately, in the long view of history, be seen as one of the city's greatest mayors. He'll be right up there with Hayes and Pingree and Frank Murphy. It'll take a while because of, you know, history, mm -hmm. <laughs> how history sees people. But I mean, he literally saved the city of Detroit from total collapse in 1981 when he was able to get a uh, a deal with the AFSCME unions um, that literally. Was 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 going to reduce the 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 trajectory the trajectory for wage increases and benefit increases because the city didn't have the money. The whole thing got blown to hell in a handbasket when the police department went and got a non-elected, non-appointed, non-resident uh, arbitrator to award that department a hundred million dollar contract mm. uh, that the city was then bound to happen. So what did Detroit have to do in the 80s? Increase the income tax. What did it have to do to make room to for, to pay all the police officers what they were going to get under this contract? Start to decimate the other, the second largest uh, labor-intensive department in city government. What was it? The recreation department. What was the recreation department in that era? The main crime prevention program. Mm -hmm. This is where young people had places to go, had play leaders and senior play leaders and recreation managers who could be, you know, critical people in, in people's lives, young people's lives, and help young people find their own particular road mm -hmm. to a different future. All that we can't, was compromised because of the need to make this contract award mm. whole. And that literally uh, set in motion, I think, the, the, um, dis the, the, the destruction of dismantlement mm. of the uh, city government that led to the bankruptcy, which was unfortunately inevitable by that time. Mm. So the 80s was a really critical era mm -hmm. in which um, there was consolidation of, of black political leadership in the city, but it was also an era where the disinvestment, the consequences of disinvestment took hold and where there was on the part of, of, of um, leadership, um, uh, people were slow to... Um, be willing to look at the kind of tough decisions that needed would be were needed to be made in order to try to stop the hemorrhaging. So, '90s Detroit. '90s Detroit was an era actually when there was an uh, an. Up and actually, you're you're in office. 90s in '94. Too. So '94. Yeah, that's what I was going to yeah. say. So you you enter office in the '90s. '94. 
Um, and this was an era Clinton was president. There was a, um, a, a an affection for urban communities that had mm -hmm. like was not there previously. There was that a sure wasn't. right, <laughs> um, and there and this and this was a president a president who um, had a different relationship with the black community than mm -hmm. prior presidents had had. Uh, um, Mayor Young decides um, to, well, Mayor Young had, uh, there's a long story, it's not for today. Um, in 1989, literally the day my husband died, we got a call from the mayor's office wanting to have a meeting between Ken and, uh, have a dinner meeting at our house between Mayor uh, Young and Ken. Um, later that night he died. Wow. Uh, so that meeting never happened. Um, and I think the question was going to be... Basically, it was going to be the, yo, you're going to get the support when right. I step down. Right. And, you know, is this the year or not? Anyway, so Ken, Ken it was an issue for him because his thing was Katie was three years old. And his thing mm. was, you know, I have a three-year-old daughter oh, and yeah. I have to... Um, be a dad. Yes, be a, you know... A, so he was progressive in that point. Because, absolutely. He was because, a wonderful uh, father. Me, he was, me and Warren in his era definitely weren't necessarily... Uh, the 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 change in diapers type yes well he he was a hands-on parent and actually wow, i believe okay. his relationship with kenny uh was very close they saw each other you hmm. know multiple times a week um wow. even though ken was not his, the, his custodial parent um mm -hmm. but lives were and anyway so the 90s are the city uh, mayor Ar archer uh, dennis archer runs for mayor the city's economy stabilizing there's the cops program there are more ability to hire more police officers um so at the end of it when when dennis archer that after those eight years when he left office um there was a surplus there was a budget surplus that existed that was wiped out in under a year well i'm gonna pause on that but i do have one I'm going to ask a, the a classic Detroit is different question. But before I do that, because we talk so much about police brutality mm. and I know you're about to leave <laughs> when you see the incidents that still exist oh. today with police brutality. Yes. What's your like like what what's your emotion towards that? Because I know you've been yes. in this fight for so long. It's I mean, it is literally seeing the arc of history connect. I mean. We ran a cop watching program in Detroit in the era, you know, the late 60s, where I, we, I had people out there. I have a cop watching manual, a manual I created to like, here's how you, how you like record an incident. We had mm -hmm. people take out little cameras, those Kodak 126 cameras, and mm -hmm. take pictures and record badge numbers and car numbers and advise people, is there somebody you want us to call? Uh, and this is in the days where, um, you know, the, the driving while black phenomena was then called stop and frisk. It's basically the same uh, protocol. So, yeah. I mean, so to see, um, to know, I mean, in the, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, the line for brutality was, I thought he had a knife. And by the late 80s and early 90s, it turned oh, yeah, to, I thought he had a gun. gun. And yeah. in both cases, and I, you know, so I'm, I am, I think the continuum between the activism around police brutality in the 60s and Black Lives Matter um, and, uh, you know, other um, group organizational mm -hmm. responses, it is literally linking history to the present. And it is, um, it's, it's, horrible in one way but also to to actually now with cell phones have people be unable to deny mm. the reality of police brutality um i think sets the stage for um some real change i don't think it's going very quickly um i but think you we think that it's getting i close. think it's a I think there's a, there's a possibility to force issues today to a different level than there's that's that's more uh, structurally significant than in the past. Okay, and the last I generally got three. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you what three are because well, the last one is always if you could rename Woodward after one person, who would it be? And I'm just gonna tell you this: Phil Cooley selected Ken Cockle. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yep, yep. Phil Cooley, the owner of Slow's Barbecue yes. and over at Pony Ride. Yes. Phil does all types of stuff. He does. I got He's an interesting cat. He's probably yep. doing some different <laughs> stuff, but he selected Ken Cockrell. But wow. I'm going to ask your very first car, what year, make and model was it, and what year did you get it? 
Oh. And where did you go when you got it? I was a late bloomer when it came to driving. I didn't have any particular interest in driving a car, so I was probably 22 mm. when I had a car. When oh, I got, yeah, you said like drove. you were a dinosaur in Detroit waiting until you were 22. Absolutely. To have a car. I was not that care. I didn't care about cars. And so and you were taking the bus till then? People I was taking the bus. Ain't I, that, oh, I lived on the bus. You were, oh, man. You, um, you could do a D dot commercial for real. Like, <laughs> I, I lived. I took the bus. <laughs> right. Um, so the car, and actually I got it because of all the work we were doing with ad hoc. Uh-huh. And I was like, I needed it. Somebody gave me, I forget, some some priest's brother gave me this little blue, navy blue Fiat. Mm. So I learned to drive a stick because it was a stick. Wow. But it actually had whatever, the, there's some like, I've never learned the inside of a car. Um <clears throat> something that has a, like a big rubber band that's in a car, an alternator, I don't know, some p- part of the car. This car, <laughs> literally that, that thing broke, and I was able to replace it with a thick um, rubber band. So I drove that into, and I think the first place I went to was just some kind of meeting about mm. police brutality. Ain't that something. <laughs> How long did that car last you? And I don't think very long. It was I, I had to buy the big, big rubber bands to keep the thing going, and I get my brother, my, Kevin, my brother, would put the things on, and we did. We sort of made do. At that time, I had, was in a shared an apartment, and and Hancock, and then it was, it was 12th Street. Now it's Rosa Parks. Ain't that something? So, yeah. little brother, you came through for your sister then. <laughs> Many a time she was getting Absolutely. you involved in activism, man. Right. You were uh, the mechanic on hand. You got it. That's good. If people want to get in contact with you, and I definitely got to get you back, uh, Citizen Detroit yes. was a big initiative. Let me just say this. Uh, Detroit is different. We're going to be doing some more stuff with them because they have candidate stuff, right. uh, getting some information out. Uh, I, I, what I'm very aware of is Detroiters used to have local civics classes. Right. Nowadays, no matter what era of education you're in you're not learning anything local civics you got it all you learn is the constitution so thank you how do people get in contact with you um it's um you can uh, our, our phone number is um three three i gotta look it up here you know how it is these days yes. my email is sheila at citizen org, and the phone number for the um office is um, let me look it up here. It's oh three three four four three one three one. Okay. And I'll put that. I'll look it up, and it'll yes. be on like the lower third, and then okay. the information. All right. Thank you so much. It was great, Kyrie. Enjoyed it very much. Oh, we got to get you back. Okay. To pick up with the two thousands, because yeah, there's a lot that's of when it lot gets of history really, yet, right? <laughs> really interesting. Absolutely. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Detroit is Different is where you get information, artistry, history, music, and even comedy. Detroit is Different, a home for the culture of Detroit. Visit online at DetroitIsDifferent.com today.